feedback here. Is, there, is that on me? Or you good? Okay. All right. We're good. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 6. I'm going to read the first couple verses here, and then we will dive in. Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray, Father, we ask that you will, that you will give us eyes to see that there, is, that there is more going on in these moments than merely talking and listening. Lord, in the preaching of your most holy word this morning, Lord, we ask for nothing less than to experience your glory. We pray that you will reveal yourself to us in and through your word. Father, allow this to be a refreshing and encouraging time of communion with you as you speak to us through what you've already spoken. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we have quite the feat in front of us. We are tackling four chapters, Genesis 6 through 9, Noah and the Flood. But good news and bad news is this is a familiar story to all of us that makes my job and your job a lot harder this morning. Because it's so easy for us when we're, when we're so familiar with a passage of Scripture that we can just assume we know what it's all about. Just easily check out, start planning our week, start thinking about what's happening this afternoon, knowing I've heard this before. I'm familiar with this. Maybe for some of you, you can think back to your time in Sunday school, and you can, you can see the flannel graph, like you close your eyes, and there are mental pictures in there. Maybe even humming the song to yourself right now, the Lord told Noah, you know. <laughs> We're familiar with this story. Those who've grown up in the church, those who have grown up around the church, and those who, this is your first time ever in a church, you know this story. For no other reason than, than Russell Crowe starting a movie a few years ago on Noah and the flood. And again, while I said well, this is largely a good thing that we're familiar, can cause a few problems, mainly being that we are tempted to miss the point entirely. 
L. Moeller writing about this passage, I think it was just so helpful. Writing about the story of Noah, he said, there's far more here than meets the eyes. He said, well, that's not exactly true. It's all here for eyes to see, but there's far more here than most eyes will meet. Often when we, when we look at this story, it just becomes an exercise in missing the point. And I think that there are three main ways that we're tempted to do this. I think primarily we can be tempted to, to do this by making this story all about Noah. Even what we call it, Noah and the flood. We, we can make this story all about Noah. Well, spoiler alert, this story is not about Noah. In fact, Noah doesn't even speak a word in this story until the credits are rolling. This is a story about God. This is not a story about Noah. Second way we can miss this story is by turning it into a, into a scientific textbook, by opening up Genesis 6 through 9 and looking for questions, looking for answers to questions that the text isn't asking. We come to Genesis 6 through 9 and we say, what does this say about the age of the earth? What does this say about the fossil record? What does this say about how the Grand Canyon was formed? And if we're looking to the text to find those answers, we've already missed the point. And lastly, we can miss the point just by questioning whether this flood ever happened. Perhaps you're here this morning, and as you wrestle with, with whether you think the Bible is true or not, can, can I trust what the Bible says? And as you hear stories about a, a worldwide flood that just destroys the whole world, but there's this boat with eight people and two of every animal on it, and you just think, that's just crazy, guys. Like, that's why I don't believe the Bible's true. Well, if that's where you are this morning, I just want to acknowledge that, that I understand that a passage like this can cause some questions. I understand that a passage like this could cause you to question whether why the Bible, what the Bible actually says here actually happened. If, if you have those questions, please come talk to me. I would love to talk to you after the service about this. But I just want to offer one just, just brief point or one brief maybe reason for why we should consider this story being true. When you think about ancient literature, or particularly ancient Near Eastern literature, which is, about, which is the world in which the Bible was written in, every single culture has a narrative of a flood story of some kind. You know, we can think of the epic of Gilgamesh. We can think of the, the Adarahasis epic, the Egyptian creation narratives. Every single ancient Near Eastern culture has a flood-like story. There are differences between those accounts and what the Bible says, to be sure. But nevertheless, the fact that every single culture has one of these stories should cause you to, to pause and question, why, why is this? And I know it's not going to seal the deal, but I would just ask you to consider this morning, if, if perhaps every ancient culture has a flood story, because something exactly like what we see in Genesis 6 through 9 actually happened. Now, I've said, I know I've said a lot about how we can miss the point of the, the flood story, and that's part of that challenge I was talking about earlier. Because we can look in this text for, for answers to, to scientific questions or, or questions that the text isn't meaning to answer. 
And I belabored that point because I think it's important for us to know when we come to Genesis 6 through 9, when we come to all of Genesis, when we come to all of Scripture, we need to see that it's interested in asking and answering eternal questions. The Bible was given to us to answer questions about who is God, about who we are, about how we relate to Him. And that's exactly what this story is about. The story of Noah and the flood is a story about the God that we worship. It's a story about what's wrong with the world, what he's done and what he's doing to make it right. So as we turn to our passage this morning, I want to highlight two points that I think God wants us to see. I want our eyes to meet two truths that I think God is going to help us to see better who he is. We're going to see what's wrong with the world, and secondly, what God is doing to make it right. So first, we see that our sin destroys everything. In the first, in the first part of the flood narrative, we see the devastating effects of sin. I know that Tab unpacked this last week, so I'm not going to belabor the point But as we we turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, we see that the world is in a downward spiral. As man has sought autonomy apart from God, as man has sought to be his own God, things have not gotten better. They've gone from bad to worse. As Tab read last week in Ephesians 6, 5, every thought of man, every inclination of his heart was only evil continually. What God had once looked out upon and declared very good, he now looks at and sees only death, corruption, and violence. Look with me at Genesis 6, 11 through 13 again, and notice God's description of the world. Speaking to Noah, he says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Do you see that repetition? I underlined it for you. In three verses, God uses the terms violence and corruption five times. He doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to miss the state of the world. The word corruption here refers to something that that was originally good. It's been ruined. It's been been spoiled. It's It's been twisted. And that's what we do in our sin. We take God's good creation and we just bring corruption. We we ruin it. We twist it. We distort God's good gifts and we distort them and we use them to destroy the world around us. What God says was once very good is now corrupt. The other word violence that's used here, it's it's an interesting word that that refers specifically to social violence and conditions in human society where social justice is lacking. We see that social justice has been around since the fall, and it's always brought about the same response in God. We see that he hates it, 
and he is committed to judging those who bring it about. In these verses, we're seeing the human effects of sin. We're seeing how sin destroys everything. Francis Schaeffer, he once said that the doctrine of total depravity is the one Christian doctrine that can be empirically proven. I think as we we look at the world around us, as we see the injustice all around us, we can see that that's true. As we think about human trafficking, as we think about many other social injustices that are going on, we can look around us and go, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Our sin is destroying God's good creation. That's what sin does. But as we think about it, we realize that that sin, that's not something that's just out there. Sin doesn't just destroy the world around us. It doesn't just destroy and corrupt the institutions, whether it's governments or whatever else it is. Sin's not just something that is out there. But as we consider how sin just seeks to destroy everything, we can look at our own hearts and we can see how sin, left to, how left to ourselves, sin will just destroy us. As I look at my own life, as I, as I look at my own heart, I'm aware of the sin that is just so deep within me. I'm reminded I don't love God as I ought. I don't love my neighbor as myself. Living in a fallen world, sin has corrupted all of us. That's one way that, that sin destroys everything. It's just sin by itself brings destruction. We destroy things. We turn in on ourselves and we corrupt things. But that's not the worst of it. Because as we see in the flood, what will will happen next is God just doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin. He can't. In In light of his holiness, where all of our sins are ultimately against him, God must judge sin. And this text is clear that that's exactly what he intends on doing. Look what God tells, tells Noah before he, he tell, or after he tells him to build the ark. In Genesis 6, 17, he says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This isn't the G-rated story that many of us grew up with. You know, that line I was singing earlier, the Lord told Noah to build him an arky, arky. That's, that's not what it should say. I'm sorry I sang, you guys. I promised I shouldn't have done it. All right. But, uh, but, you know, that line that we just sing and it makes us smile, it really should be that the Lord told Noah that he's going to kill everybody. And we just, we sanitize this story. Even my girls at home, they have little Noah characters, two of the little animals. They like to play with them, those little tyke things. We just sanitize the story. We, we take the, the judgment and the destruction and the consequences for our sin out of it, almost as if that's not what we're supposed to see. But Moses goes to great lengths, as, as we just read. He's, he's going to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on the earth will die. God will judge sin the end of Genesis 7, we see the effects of this flood that brings chaos, this flood that, that reverses creation. It, it, de- it brings about a decreation, and we see how it destroys everything. In Genesis seven twenty one. 
it says that all, that all the flesh that died on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming things that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything, catch that, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Every living thing was blotted out, completely removed. The extent of this judgment is meant to show us how much God hates sin. But we need to see that the flood account isn't here just to tell us about something that God did in the past. Because in the New Testament, as Noah shows up time and time again, he's always used as an illustration pointing forward to another judgment. Take, for example, the Gospel of Luke. Luke is using the account of Noah to highlight the fact that just as Noah and his generation didn't know when the flood would come, so we don't know when Christ will come to judge the world. And here's what he said. Here's what, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Noah, Genesis 6, Genesis 7, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. It says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Just as God judged the sinfulness of mankind in the flood, Luke, Jesus, points to a time when there will be a future judgment. If you're here, if you've, if you've yet to trust in Christ, this morning I, I would be doing you a disservice if I failed to warn you about this coming judgment. The Bible is, is very clear that the penalty of sin is death. In Hebrews, we read that first comes death and then judgment. And all of those who have not turned to Christ, who have not trusted in him, will spend eternity in hell, spend eternity in a real physical hell separated from the presence of God. This is true. But I also wanted to let you know that there is an, there is an escape from this judgment. Just as God saved Noah, God made a covenant with Noah and his family. He saved them from the floodwaters. This morning, he's offering salvation to you as well. If you will turn to Christ, if you will trust in his life, death, and resurrection for your sins. Because you, as, as you, you see in the Gospels, as Jesus hung on the cross for our sins, he was plunged under the, under the floodwaters of God's judgment for all who will believe. And by trusting in him, Christ can become for you an ark of salvation. What were once waters of God's judgment on our sin will become a flood of God's love for you. So if that's you, I just want to, to encourage you this morning to not presume on God's patience with you. Today and every day that you're alive is just a gift of God's common grace to you. It's a sign of his patience towards you. So as we see in the New Testament, as Peter, who alludes to Paul, or who alludes to Noah and says, there's a judgment coming, he also says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should have eternal life. God truly desires that all will be saved.
But while God is long-suffering, he is not forever suffering. And judgment will come to all of those who have rejected his free gift of salvation shown to us in Jesus. So, so if that's you, if you would, were here and you can relate and say, I, I've not trusted in Christ, I would just encourage you, I would just plead with you to do that now. To receive the free gift of eternal life that Christ is offering to you now. I know this has been, been a bit of a heavier sermon thus far as we see God judging sin. As we see how sin destroys all things. But that's a necessary precursor to what we see next. Because without judgment, without destruction, what we see next doesn't matter. Because what we see next is that God's grace God's grace restores all things. The first thing that God wants us to see is that our sin destroys all things. And it will inevitably sooner or later bring judgment. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. The story, in the, the story of Noah and the flood doesn't end at chapter 7. Actually, it's just picking up. Because as we turn to Genesis 8, We've come to the high point of this passage. Genesis 8 is the, is the climax. It's the, it's the pinnacle. It's the peak of the mountain that is the Noah and the flood story. As we see, we see that this text is, is primarily here to highlight, to show us that God's grace restores all things. It's here to show us that where our sin brings destruction, God's grace brings restoration. Where our sin brings chaos, God's grace restores order. Genesis 6 to 9, it shows us not only that will God act to judge, but even more important, that he acts to save. Look with me at Genesis 8.1. Genesis 8.1 says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him. Oh, how we love the but gods of Scripture, right? And this is one phrase, this is one but God that Moses doesn't want us to miss. In a world without Microsoft Word, without pages, with no concept of bold, underline, italics, caps lock, in a world where exclamation points or emojis don't exist, I know some of you might be thinking, how do people communicate with one another? But uh, where those don't exist... Moses and the other biblical authors had to come up with creative literary devices to draw our attention to points they were trying to emphasize. They had to, to be creative with repetition and other things like that to draw our attention so that we wouldn't miss what they're trying to highlight. And that's exactly what Moses does here. This might not mean much to you. I thought this was really cool. But Genesis 6-9 to Genesis 9-19 is a massive chiasm. A chiasm, it's kind of like an inverted X structure. Um, and if you don't remember back to your grammar days, because I didn't remember, a, a chiasm is a, it, it's a repetition of similar ideas in a reverse order. So it's kind of like that A, B, B, A sequence. I have, we'll have a slide here in a second to show you. But one author found that there are 15 points that Noah or Moses is intentional to highlight and then repeat in reverse order, all to emphasize Romans, or not Romans, but Genesis 8.1. I 
if you put that slide up there, there, there's a whole bunch of them, but I just want to show you four of them that Moses does with these numbers here, with the numbers 740 and 150. The whole whole point, the whole narrative is coming to a point on Genesis 8-1, drawing all our attention to Genesis 8-1. Again, there's more than just these four, but these four, I think, can help us see what Moses is doing. We have the number 7740, and in but God remembers Noah, and in 5047, 7. I'm not doing this just to, to impress you because I'm not impressive, but I, I'm doing this so that we can, we can focus on Genesis 8 1 so that we can, we can see the importance of that passage in our Bible, so we can see how that, so we can see how that just elevates and lifts up God's grace as he restores all things. Moses is doing everything he knows possible to draw our attention to that phrase, but God remembered Noah. Moses didn't want the Israelites to miss this, and the Holy Spirit doesn't want you and me to miss this. Because if we miss Genesis 8-1, we miss the point of the entire narrative. So what's going on here? Let's look at Romans 8.1. Floodwaters have completely surrounded the earth. It's been 150 days. Noah is just sitting in this ark. Death and destruction all around him. I wonder what's going through his mind in that moment. What would be going through your mind in that moment? You're at least 154 days on this ark with your family, with animals. It'd be enough to drive me nuts. It'd be enough to just cause me to question, especially as you see the destruction all around. And I don't know about you, but I could just imagine Noah thinking to himself, all right, God, what are you doing? You promised me, you promised me before I built the ark. You promised me before I got into the ark that you were going to make a covenant with me, that you were going to save me. And here I am, day after day after day, just floating. No clue when this is going to end. No clue what's going to come next. And we're told that God remembers. God remembers Noah. I just wonder what you might be going through in life right now. What's what maybe day after day do you feel like you're sitting in an ark, surrounded by the floodwaters, and you just question, God, have you forgotten? You know what's going down here? You know what's going on down here in this boat? Do you remember me? Do you care? If you feel like, like you can relate, if you feel like... Uh, you're, like, you're in that boat right now. Let, let this passage bring you comfort. God remembers Noah. God remembers you. And just as God remembers and he acts to save Noah and his family, God remembers you. He's promised to act. Doesn't mean circumstances are going to change. Doesn't mean at a flip of a switch everything changes. But God has promised that he will act. He will remember. 
as we think of this concept of, of remembering, I think to, to truly appreciate what it means, we, we need to, to understand what the Bible means when it says that God remembers. I know for some of us just here in uh, America and Western civilization, when we think of remembering, it's like, oh, well, they forgot, so they remembered. But that's not what it means in the Bible when it says that God remembers. He hadn't forgotten Noah and his family. Instead, it means that he's choosing to take an action. When God remembers, he's, he's choosing to take an action to act on that person's behalf for their good. Let me, let me illustrate maybe two different ways that we might think about remembering. Imagine two guys. We'll go with Tom and Charlie this morning. Remember two guys, Tom and Charlie, who remember their respective wedding anniversaries in two very different ways. Tom's landed him in his wife's good graces, and Charlie's landed him in the doghouse. And here's why. Tom remembered his anniversary by sending his wife a dozen roses. He made reservations at their favorite restaurant for supper, and he bought her a little gift just to let her know that he loves her, he's thankful for her, he cares for her. That's Tom. But Charlie, Charlie reminded his anniversary in a much more dangerous way. He remembered it in the same way that he remembered two plus two equals four. In, that, in, uh, in, in the same way that he remembered in 1942, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And he remembered it in the same way that he's going golfing next weekend. At bedtime, when Charlie asked his wife why she seemed so upset, she's, she started crying. She's saying, you forgot our anniversary. To which Charlie, just thoroughly surprised, he doesn't know where this is coming from. He says, no, honey, I, di I didn't forget. He says, I remembered it when I woke up this morning and I, and I looked at our calendar. In fact, I've been remembering it's our anniversary all day long. We know where this ends. Poor Charlie will spend the night, perhaps the next week, in the doghouse, sleeping on the couch, because he had the wrong understanding of what it means to remember. When God remembers, he is not mentally assenting to something, but his remembering is driving him to act like we saw with Tom. So as we see with Noah, God's remembrance is his first step in doing something good as he saves them. And, and this should, should really amaze us. Noah and his family deserve judgment. Left to themselves, they're no different than the rest of the world that perished in the flood. And yet we see in God's grace... In God's grace, instead of getting what they deserve, instead of being swept away in the waters of judgment, God remembers them. He shows them mercy and he acts to save. And this is why Moses goes to such great lengths to highlight Genesis 8-1 for us, because he doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to miss this but God, because it changes everything. I love what uh, James Montgomery Boyce, he's a longtime pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church, he wrote this about the phrase, but God. He said, may I put it quite simply. He said, if you understand these two words, but God, they will save your soul. If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. And Boyce is right. As we see in our passage, 
To the left of but God in Scripture appear some of the worst human atrocities characterized by disobedience and rebellion. To the left of these but God statements in Scripture is nothing but hopelessness, death, and darkness. But to the right of following of but to the right following these but God statements, we see hope, we see light, we see life. Following God's intervention, these but gods, here in the story of Noah, we see that this story becomes not one of judgment, but one of grace, one of restoration. And it's not just here that we see this. All throughout the Bible, the the later biblical authors pick up on, on this use of but God, and they use it time and time again to mark all of the great salvation points in Scripture. We see death, we see darkness, we see destruction, and then there's but God. And we see salvation, we see grace, we see mercy. The but God marks God's relentless and merciful interventions in human history. It teaches us that God doesn't wait for us to bring ourselves to him, but that he acts first to bring about our good. And this is true for all of us in here who have trusted in Christ this morning. If you're here, if you've, if you've turned to Jesus, if you've trusted in his life, death, and resurrection, you've experienced God's relentless, merciful, and gracious intervention in your life. To the left of your but God was hopelessness. It was darkness. It was death. But to the right, we see that there is light there is life, that there is hope. This is exactly what Paul shows us in Ephesians 2. Just, just look at these verses with me. Paul, Paul writes, he says, in you, this is, this is all of us. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's that but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. To the left, death, and to the right, life. To the left, there's God's wrath, and to the right, there's love. This is God restoring all things. This is God's grace bringing life where there was death. And friends, let's not pass over this too quickly. If you're here, if you are in Christ, you will never experience God's judgment for your sin. Because of this, but God. God is restoring all things. Let our our hearts rejoice in that. As the story continues, we see that God, God acts to save Noah. He sends a wind over the earth, hearkening back to Genesis 1 2, and he brings about a new creation as the earth comes, as the animals come, as life returns to the earth. And we see that God enters into that God makes a covenant with Noah. In the Bible, covenant, it's one of the most important themes in all of Scripture. Some people people even believe this is the the unifying theme of the whole Bible. If you you don't understand covenant, you can't understand the whole Bible. But but too often for you and for me, we, we really don't have a good understanding of what covenant is. In the Bible, we see that a covenant is a chosen relationship between two parties who make binding promises to one another. It's, it's, a, it's a covenant, it's a relationship between two parties who make promises 
to one another, who make binding promises to one another. And it's this relational piece that, that distinguishes a covenant from a contract. You see, a contract has promises and obligations too, but they're, they're impersonal and they're non-relational. If you think about your relationship with your spouse versus your relationship with your plumber, that there's, a, there's promises that you are making to one another, whether it's to pay, whether it's to provide a service, but there's no relationship there. There's, there, there's this relationship with your plumber or this co- contract with your plumber. It's not based on a relationship. But your relationship, with your covenant with your spouse is based on a prior relationship. There's a, a prior relationship there and you commit into a covenant. You make promises to one another. So we see that God makes this covenant with Noah. We see that he doesn't just save us and leave us on our own, but that he desires to be in a relationship with us. Look with me at Genesis 8.21. God says, He says, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither again, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In this covenant, God is committing. He's promising to Noah and to all of creation that he will never again destroy the earth with the flood. Genesis 9 and 11 makes this even more clear where he says that I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In making this covenant, God is pledging to human beings that they will be preserved until the end of history. There's no other natural disaster, no earthquake, no tornado, no hurricane, no fire will destroy the entire world while God is still at work. He's promised that he will be merciful and faithful to his creation. Even though, as Genesis 8.21 shows us, nothing's really changed in the heart of man after the fall. Genesis 8.21 that we just read, we saw that the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. As we saw earlier from, from Genesis 6.5, this is, this is the exact point that caused God to bring about the flood. And here God sees that it's still true. It's still true of Noah, of his wife, of his sons. It's true of all of us. And yet in his grace and in his mercy, he makes a covenant that he will not destroy the earth. And in making this covenant, we see that God creates a firm stage in history where he can work out his plan for restoring the world. It's the Noahic covenant here. It's this relationship that, Noah enters in, that God enters into with Noah that helps us see that God will keep the promise he made to Eve in the garden, that he would send a redeemer who would restore all things. And this helps us make sense of why God would even save Noah. I mean, if you keep reading, we see that Noah is no different from anyone else. I mean, just like the first Adam, he's placed into a garden and he falls and he ends up naked, just like the first Adam. But it's because of who our God is. He's a gracious and merciful God that he acts to save Noah, that he enters into this relationship with Noah, promising to preserve all of creation until he has brought about his plan of salvation. This is God's grace to us. Church, we serve a faithful God who keeps his promises. 
God chose to save Noah, Genesis 6, 8. God shows favor. God shows grace to Noah. The first time the word grace is ever used in Scripture, he does that not because of anything in Noah, but because of who he is. Because it's not just Noah and his family that's being preserved in the ark. It's God's promise that's being preserved. It's God's character. It's it's God's faithfulness in that ark. God was not, he has not, and he will not forget his promises. It's It's God's appointed line that is in that ark. This line points straight down history, as Luke shows us, from Noah all the way to Christ. God shows grace. God restores all things because he's saving all things in Christ. Yeah. I even just mindful this week of God's, God's word of comfort in this covenant. Can you imagine what would have been going through Noah's mind the next time it started to rain had God not made this promise to him? He would be hightailing it for that ark the second he felt that raindrop thinking, oh no, God's going to do it again. But God in his grace, God in his comfort makes this promise that he will never again flood the earth. He didn't want Noah living in fear. So he provides this sign. God is faithful. I'm not sure where you need to hear that this morning. I'm not not sure where this might encourage your heart as you are just dealing with life in a fallen world. As we all struggle with sin as we all deal with suffering. I don't know what it looks like in your life. This morning, as we consider God's covenant with Noah, as we consider God's faithfulness, as we consider the fact that God is a God who restores all things, let that comfort and encourage you. God has not forgotten. He is a remembering God. He remembers you now and he desires to meet you. The story of Noah and the flood is here to show us that even though our our sin destroys all things, God's grace is at work restoring all things. And it brings about our ultimate restoration as we trust in Christ, as we are made a new creation. That's why this passage is here. This passage is here to reveal to us the nature of who our God is. As we read this morning, our God is a merciful and gracious God. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love towards his children. So as you think about about what is our response to this, how do we then live? I think that the main application for all of us here this morning is just to, to behold our God, to see God for who he is, to see God's grace, to see God's mercy, and to rejoice. To be satisfied in all that God is for us. To be satisfied in all that God is for you right now. Like the psalmist, we want to say that God is our exceeding joy. We want to say that God is our joy of all joys. And in the days where we struggle, where we, where we can't say that that is true of us, think about Noah. Behold this God who saves. Behold this God who has shown grace that we might remember again and be satisfied 
in him. That's my prayer for all of us this morning. That as we read the flood account, that we're not going to be distracted by modern questions, but that our affections will be stirred to see God for who he is. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as the ushers want to get ready to serve that. I think that's a, a truly fitting ending to this sermon. Because in the Lord's Supper, we're called to remember Christ.